theorizing that one could produce high-quality astronomy podcasts, Dr. Nick Rattenbury grabbed a microphone and vanished. He woke to find himself trapped in the Jodcast, asking astronomers about research that was not his own, and driven by an unseen director to change the Jodcast for the better. His only guide on this journey was Tim, an astronomer from his own observatory who appears in the form of a disembodied voice that only Nick can see and hear. And so Dr. Rattenbury finds himself leaping from episode to episode, striving to put right what the UK education system got wrong, and hoping each time that he might get the next episode off. The Jodcast. Gunpowder, treason and plot free since 1605. With Stuart Lowe, Nick Rattenbury, Megan Argo, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien and David Alt. The Judcast, November issue. Hello and welcome to the November issue of the Judcast. I've managed to wrestle the presenting and editing duties back off Stuart. I'm down here in our London studios now, and ready to bring you another packed issue of your favourite astronomy podcast. On this month's show, we have, of course, the regulars, Ask an Astronomer, with Nick and Tim, and Ian Morrison's Night Sky. Nick interviews Dr. Oliver Yunach of the European Space Agency about LISA, the proposed gravitational wave detector. And Stuart and Nick talk to Dr. Rob Nemiroff of Michigan Tech about the very popular website, Astronomy Picture of the Day. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In news this month. Gobi scientists awarded the Nobel Prize, the stereo mission to image the Sun in 3D takes off, the Hubble Space Telescope discovers ultra-short-period planets, and evidence for ice sheets on the Moon called into question. This year's Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to John Mather and George Smoot earlier this month for their work with data from the Cosmic Microwave Background Explorer Satellite, or COBE. The spacecraft, which launched in 1989, was designed to measure the afterglow from the Big Bang explosion which created our universe. This leftover energy, known as the cosmic microwave background, was first predicted in the 1940s and detected for the first time, by accident, in the 1960s by Penzias and Wilson at the Bell Telephone Labs in America. Kobe mapped this leftover radiation across the whole sky, helping cosmologists to test their theories of how the universe evolved. John Mather was awarded his share of the prize for work which proved the radiation had a black body spectrum, the shape you would expect from an object at a particular temperature. The Kobe results showed that the early universe behaved like a black body, with a temperature of many thousands of degrees. George Smoot received the award for the work which he led in detecting the slight fluctuations in this background radiation, which are thought to be evidence of structure in the very early universe which ultimately led to the formation of the structure which we see today. The results have since been confirmed by other experiments, the WMAP satellite currently mapping this radiation in more detail than COBE could achieve, and the European Space Agency's Planck spacecraft, which will be even more sensitive and is due to fly in 2008. On the 25th of October, NASA's Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatories mission, or STEREO, launched aboard a Delta II rocket from Florida in the United States. The STEREO mission consists of two identical spacecraft which will be placed in slightly different orbits to provide two different views of the Sun. 
These views will be combined in a similar way to how the brain uses information from two eyes to create a three-dimensional view of the world. The instruments on the two craft will allow 3D views of the sun and the stellar wind, which constantly streams from the surface. Studies of this wind are important as they interact with the inner planets of our solar system and affect us here on Earth. Storms on the sun send out strong winds full of charged particles, which interact with our atmosphere, affecting communications, power grids, aeroplanes, astronauts and even damaging satellites. Stereo will help spot and track these streams of particles so that scientists can provide better solar weather warnings in the future. Over 200 planets are now known to exist outside of our solar system, many of them large planets with short orbits around their host stars. Most extrasolar planets found so far have been detected by looking for the wobble of their host star caused by the gravity of the planet as it moves in its orbit. Recent observations with the Hubble Space Telescope published this month looked at 180,000 stars towards the galactic centre, with the aim of detecting the slight dip in brightness of a star as a planet passes in front of it. This is known as the transit technique, and requires very good calibration of the brightnesses of stars in the image, in order to spot the tiny drop in brightness caused by a planet blocking some of the star's light. This survey, led by Dr. Sahu of the Space Telescope Science Institute, found another 16 planet candidates which orbit their host stars in periods of between 0.4 and 4.2 days. In comparison, Mercury, the closest planet to the Sun in our solar system, takes 88 days to complete one orbit. Five of these candidate planets orbit their stars in less than one day and form a new class of extrasolar planet known as the ultra-short Jupiters. Evidence for the existence of water ice at Shackleton Crater near the Moon's South Pole has been called into question by a team led by Donald Campbell of Cornell University. The scientists used high-resolution radar imaging using the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico and the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia to map the area and found that the echoes from this region matched those seen from other young craters in other parts of the Moon's surface in places where sunlight would cause any ice crystals to melt. Results from previous observations, including data from the Clementine spacecraft, suggested that ice deposits were present in the walls of this crater. Although the lack of evidence is disappointing for plans to build a base on the Moon using ice deposits to create fuel, Campbell points out that this does not mean that there is no water on the Moon. Comet or meteorite impacts over the lifetime of the Moon could have brought some water to the surface, which is probably now distributed as ice grains mixed in with the lunar soil rather than in large deposits as was predicted at the Shackleton crater. During October, both the Fox telescopes, two 2-metre class optical telescopes situated in Hawaii and Australia, suffered natural disasters. The telescopes are used by schools worldwide, allowing children to make their own images of astronomical objects and contribute to scientific research. The telescope in Hawaii was damaged by the earthquake which occurred off the coast of Big Island on October 15th and will hopefully be back in service very soon. The telescope in Australia was hit by a direct lightning strike the following day and has been seriously damaged. Engineers are working on both telescopes and they hope to have both back in service in the new year. Also in October, Mount Stromlo Observatory in Canberra, Australia was reopened following major rebuilding efforts after a bushfire destroyed the site in 2003. Buildings and telescopes were damaged and in some cases destroyed in the fire which swept through Australia's capital city in January three years ago. The reopened facility includes large laboratories and workshops where new equipment can be designed and constructed. And finally, 
NASA have approved a fifth servicing mission to the Hubble Space Telescope. The decision was announced on the 31st of October by Michael Griffin, the current NASA administrator. The American Space Agency, who operate the telescope together with the European Space Agency, ESA, had previously cancelled planned missions to the orbiting observatory following the loss of the shuttle Columbia in 2003. Three shuttle missions have flown successfully since then, and the decision has now been taken to return to the telescope one last time. As well as problems caused by failing guidance systems, some of Hubble's scientific instruments need replacing. This mission, the latest in Hubble's 16 years of operations, will replace failed instruments and upgrade one of the fine guidance sensors, which keep the telescope pointing in the correct direction. The flight is scheduled to launch in 2008, and will hopefully extend the mission to 2013. Thanks, Megan. Now, some of you may be familiar with Astronomy Picture of the Day. It's a daily archive of some of the universe's most fascinating and beautiful pictures. Nick and Stuart got onto Skype to talk to Dr. Rob Nemiroff of Michigan Tech, who is one of the founders of Astronomy Picture of the Day, to find out a little bit about its history. Robert Nemiroff, welcome to the Jodcast. Thanks for inviting me on. Happy to be here. Well, not here, here. You're still on the <laughs> phone, but uh, virtually here. Now, you're an astronomer at the Michigan Technological University and also NASA Goddard. Um, well, actually, I spend my time not at NASA Goddard uh, anymore. I still have a web address there, but uh, I think that email is forwarded to me at Michigan Technological University, known as Michigan Tech, to people around here, which is uh, pretty much in the northern U.S., pretty much in the middle of North America. You work with another astronomer, Jerry Bunnell, on a website called Astronomy Picture of the Day. Can you tell us a bit about how it got started? I do. Um, yes, uh, Jerry and I are still quite proud of this. Astronomy Picture of the Day I know, was born in 1995 when I was at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and shared an office with uh, Jerry Bunnell. So we've had some fanciful conversations at, at many times about many different things, all the way from is the universe encyclopedia encoded in the digit pi to what is this World Wide Web going to do? Is this going to be useful? And uh, how come NASA higher-ups don't seem to, you know, appreciate the, the power of the web? Uh, so uh, one day we were uh, brainstorming ways to use the web and came up with lots of ideas that had nothing to do with astronomy and a couple of ideas that had something to do with astronomy and just decided to try this astronomy picture of the day idea. So this was uh, pretty much an idea you're kicking around with uh, Jerry Bonnell. It was just a, a way pretty much to use this fantastic new internet thing. Yeah, there was um, the World Wide Web, which we then knew as... I didn't know there was a difference between Mosaic, which was an early browser, and the web. So I would keep referring to the web as Mosaic. But um, it was really cool. And we would be sent pictures by email sometimes by people saying, have you seen this? This is a, you know, a Hubble picture or another picture. And many of the pictures we were getting were not, you know, described. You know, you sort of had to know. Sometimes we would know, like, oh, I know what that is because, you know, we're an astronomer. That's an open cluster. I know that. But uh, we were wondering, for one thing, how many people were getting these email attachments with no description. So we figured, you know, there's not so many of them. We could, uh, we could probably do one a day and write at least a description that someone who's not an astronomer could get an understanding. So it was a way sort of to help make the astronomy part of the web better explained instead of just, oh, wow, that looks cool, what is that kind of thing. 
that's the big thing about um, APOD, isn't it? I mean, that's something which I, I feel is a, a very important part of the astronomy picture of the day is those explanations that you give. It's not just the pretty picture. It's not just the, the, the wonderful colors or the exciting rocket taking off. It is the description down the bottom underneath the picture saying, this is what you're looking at. This is what it means. And here are some links so you can go and uh, learn more about it. It makes it such a, a wonderful resource. How much uh, how much effort do you put into researching the, the background of each image? Or do you have a... Is, does it come together pretty easily? Some come together more easily than others. Uh, Jerry and I work in parallel. We rarely work together on them. I do some each week, and he does some each week, and we each sort of know what the other is thinking. Uh, I sort of think of it myself as building an APOD. Usually, I'll start with an image, and then I'll build the text from the image. Every now and then, it's the other way around. Something really cool is going on in astronomy, and I go out searching for an image. And I've found that's the hard way to do things. Sometimes I happen to have worked in that area or something, and uh, so it doesn't take me as long to understanding the background and explaining the background uh, as it would have in other areas where I don't really know so much. So what's your area of astronomy? Well, I have uh, worked in um, gravitational lensing. My PhD was in gravitational lensing, deflection of light by stars and stuff out in the universe, and that codes the universe in a way, and you can help figure out what's in the universe by, by looking at it. So I still do an occasional paper every now and then on having something to do with gravitational lensing. Uh, and I became interested, I've worked in several different areas, I uh, became interested in gamma ray bursts, huge flashes of uh, gamma radiation that just come and go in seconds in some random part of the sky, totally dominate the gamma ray sky for you know a few seconds maybe. And uh, for a long time, people didn't know, have any idea, even the distance scale to them. That's actually when I was working with Jerry Bunnell. We both worked together at that uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And uh, we were actually in the middle of a huge debate as to whether gamma ray bursts were um, at cosmological distances, which actually Jerry and I both believed, uh, as did the rest of our group, or whether they were somehow in our galaxy or at the edge of our galaxy, which a significant group of people believed. And we were continually coming, trying to come up with ways of finding out what they were, first of all, because we were just trying to investigate it, and also, since we were pretty much in the cosmology camp, ways that would show they were unambiguously cosmological. And, of course, whenever we would come up with something, it would be hotly debated, and galactic people, as we called them, would come up with something else. And it was an exciting time, but it was a frustrating time. Uh, but uh, yeah, we have uh, have uh, quite a few papers together on uh, gamma ray bursts, and it is during one of the summers of researching uh, gamma ray bursts at NASA Goddard that uh, the astronomy picture of the day sort of came out. We had a, at NASA Goddard, we had a great internet connection, equivalent to extremely broadband, which was very unusual in 1995. We had no problems bringing in big images and sending out big images, and so we had these computers that had instant internet web connection, and so we considered ourselves lucky with the resource and, you know, sort of felt challenged to use it. That, that, that sounds like a, a brilliant start to the, um, the, the, the APOD career with all the best gear in, in, in the best place. Um, so you get your ideas uh, from the, the current research which is going on um, and also the research that you're particularly interested in. Uh, do you get ideas from other people? Do they send you, hey, look, here's a picture which I talk. I think it's pretty cool. Can you, know, can you put it on, on APOD? Yes, we get a lot of those. Um, more and more as the years go by. Uh, I'm, I'm, first of all, on an emailing list, several emailing lists for um, astronomy um, news stories. So the American Astronomical Society, as well as the Royal Astronomical Society, maintains an email list of journalists. 
And when people do research that they think is newsworthy, they will many times send it many times through the university to that nexus, either the American Astronomical Society press person or the Royal Astronomical Society press person or Europe or whatever. If judged worthy by that press officer, will then be broadcast out to a large email list. So I'm on those email lists. So I can see the astronomy email stories, what different places have considered important as they come by. Many of them have links to, to images, and so I will look at that. I mean, I've been an astronomer for uh, 20 years now, so I've seen a lot of things come and go, and I have a, a sort of a guess as to what's relatively important and what's not, which is pretty pretty good to have. And I look at the images and see if it's a fuzzy blob, and it's sort of a combination of how good is the image and how important is the story uh, that make things up. I also get a lot of email from places that once their, their images posted, we, we reject maybe 10 to 1 at this point, maybe even more than that. For each image you see on APOD, we have been sent maybe nine others that some of them were pretty good, but it's a bit of a competition at this point. They just didn't win for that day. Sometimes we'll have you know, a lot of really good ones and we'll just queue them up into the future. But we try to be a bit of a news source too. So if things get too old, it's going to hurt them. Uh, if something is just happening tomorrow, like for instance, the Orionids meteor shower was pretty good. And we got sent an image, you know, a few hours and a lot of like 12 good Orionids, Orion meteors right on it. And so we queued it up for the very next day. I happened to do that one. On Monday of this week, this is being recorded on October 26th, we had a great image from, you know, a day and a half before, where sometimes uh, we will run things, you know, delayed a week, maybe two weeks, and some are just uh, classic images of things that are really cool to see, like the Eagle Nebula. If we get another good image of the Eagle Nebula and it hasn't run recently, we might run that. You also cover a lot of different areas of astronomy, and you also cover different parts of the spectrum as well. Um, do you try to keep a balance? We do. Uh, another thing that we try to do is if we haven't run something, a specific topic for a while, we'd be particularly keen to, to run something if it comes our way. We won't go too far out of our way. If there's just nothing in an area, then that area will be relatively dry. But we do try to keep a balance. One of the things that I keep in my head is that we're trying to make this useful for people taking introductory astronomy. We would like to try to cover pretty much everything you might see in an introductory astronomy book. And that's one of the things I use to see is, is this relevant for APOD or not? Is Would this appear in the next edition of a good astronomy textbook or not? Now, sometimes we go and do one that's, that's out of the, that range, but we, I try anyway to, to stick in that range. I'm teaching astronomy this semester, and I know what images I need, and that helps feed back into what kind of images I choose. Now, we, we know that you've uh, published a book in the past of uh, the, the best of the APOD images. Uh, it was in 2003, and it was called The Universe, 365 Days. You've now put together another book. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, the book is called Astronomy, 365 Days, and it's with Jerry. Jerry and I do a lot of things together. We get along uh, quite well. We're, we're good friends, and this one actually has Jerry as the first author. Uh, it's Jerry T. Banau and Robert J. Nemroff are the authors in, in the order. And the first one, I was the first author. And if we survive to do a third one, I might be the first author again. But this is Banau and Nemroff, uh, Astronomy 365 Days. The two books are exclusive of each other. This is the, the latest book, Astronomy 365 Days, has the images, all new images, none of which appeared in Universe 365 Days. 
So I guess it's a reason to buy both books or buy multiple books. I mean, <laughs> Christmas I is coming. It's important to get the uh, boutique items for, for the astronomer in your life. <laughs> yes, most people don't understand that you can replace the foundation of your house by stacking these books up. And uh, they're really quite sturdy. Actually, we, we were trying to do a book for, for a little while. We approached, I remember, at meetings in the American Astronomical Society, the Cambridge University Press would have a, have a booth, and I would frequently speak with Cambridge University Press, and they just weren't so interested in doing one. And Because uh, I would consider Cambridge to be probably the most prestigious astronomy publisher. But uh, another publisher came along and made an offer to us out of the blue, and I hadn't heard of them. It's Abrams. So Jerry and I spoke about it, and even though it wasn't Cambridge University Press, we went with it. And they've been quite professional, I have to say. They've done a good job with the book, so we are happy with them. Well, did uh, Cambridge University Press give you any reason why they didn't want to publish your book? Uh, they said, um, first of all, it's expensive to publish picture books. To do high-quality pictures takes a lot more money to do as opposed to just words. Also, they pointed out that these pictures are freely available on the World Wide Web. And so, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> so convinced that people wouldn't want to pay for them. But the the quality of the images in the book are higher, much higher than than you find on the web. And it's a convenient thing to carry around. I mean, water comes out of the top, tap, but people buy water anyway. Also, the particular company that uh, Abrams that got us to do the book, they specialized in imagery and photography and art. So they had a good pipeline for getting that stuff done. Does the book also have explanations for each image as well? Yes, it's the same explanations except grammatically correct. Because they had an editor, <laughs> they had an editor go through and, and actually make these sentences into English, or at least American English. Well, it sounds like this great sort of thing to have on a coffee table to flip through. Yeah, I want a coffee. This is my Christmas list. Have you got a favorite APOD image? Either the best of the best, the one which you use. I think it's, it's better than all the rest. I don't think I have one favorite. What happens, though, if you want to find out which ones I like, we rerun what we call best of uh, on the weekends. So if you were to type in certain, you know, the names of certain images in our search engine, you'll see some images have occurred multiple times. We don't rerun an image within the same year. It has to be at least a year separated before we run it. But some of the really good images, uh, you know, like the, the big pillars of uh, M42, mm. uh, a very famous picture. Uh, other ones just escaped my mind. Oh, the, um, the looking back on the eclipsed Earth. Uh, actually, that was originally the best image was taken from uh, the Mir space station. These things keep coming up because uh, when we rerun the best ones on the weekend, um, it just comes, you know, let's rerun the best images and give them an update the links on the explanation so it's fresh. And sometimes even update the explanation a little bit if more is known about that particular image. So to find out the favorite ones that I have and even Jerry has, uh, you just look for ones that are frequently repeated on the weekends. The, one of the reasons why we run reruns on the weekends is to reduce the, the workload. But also another reason is because the best images would just totally fall out of modern consciousness if they're never rerun. So there are two reasons. Is it a very demanding schedule to come up with a new iPod every day? It takes me about an hour to write the text, maybe a little bit less, maybe an hour to link it and to put it into the queue. So it might take about two hours for me to to build an APOD from scratch. And so I usually do 
you know, three or four a week. If I do four a week, we're talking about, you know, eight hours a week. Plus, I do get a lot of email, so maybe eight to ten hours a week. So I can still have a, you know, a teaching career, a research career, and do this. <laughs> and a life. <laughs> yeah. And, and with everything life. else. Yeah. I did go home once. I, I didn't recognize <laughs> any of the people there, so I came back to work. But, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I do have a life. Thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to us in the Jodcast uh, about Astronomy Picture of the Day. It's an absolutely fantastic resource, and I've enjoyed looking at these images ever since I became aware of them uh, many years ago. Just to plug the book again, it's uh, Jerry Bunnell and Rob Nemiroff, Astronomy, 365 Days, uh, at all good bookshops now, or Amazon, in uh, whatever part of the world you're in. Uh, Rob Nemiroff, thank you very much for joining us and talking to us about APOD. Thanks again for having me on. It's, it's been a hoot. Thanks, Nick and Stuart. And if you have Skype and would like to talk to the Jodcast astronomers, whether it be to give your comments and questions, if you'd like to submit a question for Ask an Astronomer, or if you'd just like to give us an update on your particular work in astronomy, then we actually have a Skype name, the Jodcast, or you can give us a phone call. And the number is, if you're an international dial at plus four four, and then omit the zero. But if you're calling from within the UK, it's 0161 408 1442. And of course, the classic methods of communication, like email and letters and things, also work. Go to the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net. Now, last month, Stuart promised you an interview about gravitational lensing. Well... We haven't quite managed to get that for you this month, I'm afraid. But to make up for it, we've got something equally gravitational, but gravitational waves. Actually looking at ripples in space and time. Interested? Well, here's Nick interviewing Dr. Oliver Yunuk of the European Space Agency to tell you more. Okay, today with me is Dr. Oliver Yunuk from the European Space Agency. Thank you very much for coming with us and being with us today. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and the research that you do. Yeah, thank you for uh, allowing me to be here. It's a great honor to be here in this uh, great place, actually. Never been here before, so it looks very nice. So my job at the European Space Agency is the project scientist for a space-based gravitational wave detector, LISA. And in general terms, a project scientist is the interface between the scientists in the academic world and the engineers in the agency that eventually will build or supervise the building of the of the satellite. Okay, so you're you're pretty much the the go between, I suppose, between the the technicians, the academics, and everybody else. I suppose you you're in charge of the whole project overall. Is that true? Well, not quite. So for the project itself, the project responsibility, we have project managers that interface between science, engineering and industry. So those are the people who do really the screaming and the kicking to make sure that everything is on time. Uh, my job is more along the lines of making sure that when the scientists want to have a mission that should deliver some sort of science that we safeguard the mission against um, schedule pressure and budget pressure and make sure that industry and the engineers do understand what it's meant when scientists say, oh, we want to have that sensitivity in this frequency band. How can we translate that into operational scenarios and architecture of the mission? Okay, now, so the project that we're talking about here is 
Lisa, tell us a little bit about the LISA mission. So LISA is an acronym standing for the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, and it's a bit contrived. So people say jokingly that that probably comes from the first name of the eldest daughter of one of the uh, principal investigators. And I don't quite know how true that is, but certainly her name is Lisa as well, so that might be true. But what we are doing there with that mission is we try to detect and observe gravitational waves. Now, gravitational waves are something that have long been predicted by not only general relativity, but by any serious contender for a uh, theory for gravity, because whenever you have a finite speed of light, you effectively end up with waves and gravitational waves as well. So Einstein predicted them in, I think, 1918, he thought a bit of that as a mathematical mathematical curiosity. He's reported to have said, well, you know, they are there, but they will never be detectable because they are way too weak. And it took another 40 years before then Hermann Bondi um, discovered that, oh, yes, they could be detectable because there are objects out there that produce very, very strong gravitational waves. For example, black holes coalescing with other black holes, two galaxies colliding and the cores of the galaxy, galaxies uh, coalescing, sending out a huge amount of signal. So, in effect, in essence, we are trying to detect these, uh, um, these waves and to open a new field of astronomy, really. I guess a, a question which may not be particularly easy to answer, for a gravitational wave, <laughs> what's doing the waving? That is actually a it's a, it's a kind of a tricky question because typically you get the mathematics to that and you look at it and say, oh, yeah, there's the wave. If you want to imagine what's going on, the usual picture people have in mind that work in that field is imagine you have a ring of masses and a gravitational wave passing by. What will happen is that that ring will be stretched and squeezed to a sort of an oblong shape. And what's oscillating there is really space-time itself. So we always say gravitational waves change the distance between masses or distance between different points in space-time. And this is what we really want to, uh, want to measure. So in the same way that water waves are waves in water, you can see them propagate through, they, they have a certain amplitude and direction and what have you. Gravitational waves are waves actually of space-time itself, as you say. So you detect it through how? Through changes in what? Well, there are different concepts. So how we do it, or how we plan to do it, it we want to measure the change of distance between two points in space-time directly. And a common and very well-proven way of doing that is to use interferometric measurement. If you're going out in the field seeing surveyors uh, trying to plot in new road or something like that. Many of those measurements are nowadays done interferometrically. So it's a very, com it's a very uh, natural thought to do that with gravitational waves as well. Unfortunately, gravitational waves have a very, very small effect. So the typical effect is something like uh, changing the distance between the sun and the earth to the diameter of a few atoms. And you have to really measure very accurately to do that. And one way of doing that is you need to measure a very, very long distance so that the changes are not as tiny anymore. And the concept we are looking at is having 
a measurement baseline of 5 million kilometers. And it's obvious that you can only do that in space. Having said that, there are, of course, ground-based interferometers as well and ground-based detectors as well. They are, some of them, working in the same way, measuring distance interferometrically. And they are way more sensitive than we will ever be, but they have to be because they have a much shorter baseline. You won't be able to fit 5 million kilometers on ground, of course. So they are typically on the scale of a few kilometers. And the very early concept of taking gravitational waves is just take a lump of mass, wait until the gravitational wave passes by, and listen, listen for the ringing of that mass. And that has been done first by Joe Weber in the early 60s in, in the United States and in Europe as well. And they delivered an astonishing competence in building very, very sensitive machines. However, their problem is a little bit that nature doesn't provide them with the gravitational wave where they are looking at because their frequency range is a bit out of the place. So it's not really clear if there are sources that emit in this frequency band. So the key to detecting these gravitational waves is to measure a distance very, very accurately. So how do you use interferometry to do this? Well, th this is a very simple part of it because what you do is you just send light one direction and send light another direction, say 90 degrees from it, and you reflect the light at some point so that it comes back to you and then you compare the phase of the light that comes from one side or the other. So if, you, if you're thinking about the crest and the trough of waves, you will see that there's a shift between those and um, you can easily see because of the resulting amplitude then how much the light in one or the other direction has been shifted and from that light shift you infer that the light must have traveled a longer distance. So you mentioned uh, the frequency of these gravitational waves. What do you learn from the frequency of the gravitational wave? What What is a typical frequency for a uh, a gravity wave, which we will get from uh, the sort of astrophysical phenomena that you expect? The frequency band for LISA is really from roughly 30 microhertz to uh, a hertz, something like that. So if you, at that frequency ranges, it might be better to think about time scales. So time scale between a second on the high frequency range and a few thousand to 10,000 seconds in the low frequency range. And in the low frequency range, we are mainly expecting coalescing supermassive black holes. And the reason why they are so low frequency, if you have a mass of 10 to the 8 solar masses, it's almost impossible to move much faster than that. So these are very, very massive objects that cannot move as quickly. So you're bound to have very, very low frequencies there. And on the high-end side, there are effects like smaller neutron stars or smaller black holes falling into these big black holes or neutron star binaries and black hole binaries that just keep orbiting each other and emitting gravitational waves. Okay, right. Now tell us a little bit about the LISA mission itself. How is it going to work? With LISA, we will have three satellites in an orbit around the Sun. These three satellites form an equilateral triangle with 5 million kilometer distance to each other. And they will 
be roughly 20 degrees or 50 million kilometers behind the Earth. And we have to look into things like we don't want to have the disturbance effects of the Earth-Moon system to be too large, but we want to still be able to communicate with the constellation, so we can't put it really far off. And the mission will then last for a couple of years. Baseline at the moment is five years. And light will bounce between the spacecraft. So one satellite through a telescope of moderate size, 40 centimeters, will send light to the other telescope. Now, if you pass a laser beam for, four, for 5 million kilometers and you start out with a beam width of 40 centimeters, you still end up with a beam width of 30 to 40 kilometers. So... What that means, if you have a light-collecting area of 40 centimeter a 40 telescope on the other side, you only detect every 10 to the 10th photon or something like that. So there's no way you can just put a mirror there and bring things back because you will be down to a photon per hour or something like that. And this is not feasible to do a proper measurement with that. So what we do is we, we borrowed a concept from the, from the radio astronomy people and the radio link people, they use transponders where they detect an incoming radio signal and send out the same signal uh, again, but very much amplified. And this is what we do as well. So we send light to one satellite, it will be there detected, and this satellite has its own laser that sends light back to the first satellite. So in total, we have six links, three uplinks, three downlinks, if you like. We measure the phases of of uh, the light that comes in and then we go into data processing and we will be able to effectively synthesize the response of all the interferometric combinations there. So we have the great advantage that we, in contrast to the old Michelson-Morley experiment where they really detected power, light power, we can really detect the amplitude and have the uh, accuracy increased by that tremendously. The whole concept is based on being able to measure the distance between your co-flying satellites to an extraordinary accuracy, which you can do with the interferometry. However, doesn't that mean that you need to know the position of these satellites relative to each other to an even higher accuracy? Aren't you going to be possibly fooled by uh, a slight shift between the satellites falling out of formation and think that, oh, that's a gravitational wave? How, how are you going to get around that? Yeah, of course, that's that's a principal problem. However, there are ways around that. The first thing you have to realize is that we are not so much interested in the distance. We are interested in the change of the distance. So we don't care if it's 5 million kilometers or 5 million kilometers and a couple of meters. So there, is, there are some technical um, limitations to that. For some reasons, we need to know the um, distance to within a few kilometers, but that can be easily done by common ranging techniques that are well understood in space in the space industry. So that can be done. Now, but we are really looking to the change of the distance. And you're right, if we want to measure that, we have to make sure that no other sources or other movements in that frequency range where we are looking at it um, disturb us. So what we really need to do, we need to provide a very, very quiet environment on timescales between a second and, say, 10,000 seconds. And the way we do that is we do not just put spacecraft into orbit, because if we do that, we have to fight radiation pressure from the sun and 
particle emitted from the sun and coupling to interplanetary magnetic fields and all that. What we do is we take a little cube, a mass cube of a gold platinum alloy and put that into orbit and have the spacecraft shielding it. So there is some, in the belly of the spacecraft, you like, there is a little gold cube that the spacecraft then monitors. So the spacecraft follows that gold cube and all the onslaught of light and radiation and all that will hit the spacecraft, but not the little gold cube. So the little gold cube will be as much as possible in your purely gravitational orbit. Of course, you'll never be able to do that because you have gravity gradient forces and all that. But uh, it's really the technology challenge here is to do that as good as possible. I see. So the little gold cube at the center of the spacecraft is the standard for the orbit. Basically, the satellite will follow whatever that little gold cube does. So the little gold cube is being shielded from all the particles and all the nasty stuff coming from the solar environment. It's purely a gravitational thing. So the spacecraft presumably will use its thrusters to keep itself away from, well, keep keep the gold cube from hitting the inside of the spacecraft, presumably. Absolutely true. If you don't control the spacecraft sooner or later, the spacecraft will hit the gold cube. So the spacecraft is equipped with thrusters that are very, very finely adjustable on the level of a few micronewton and less. So we are using a, a relatively recent technology development for that where we use ion drives that have a very, very low thrust capability, but on the same time are very, very finely tunable so that we can very precisely steer the spacecraft. And we are talking about micro-Newton forces here, really. So the acceleration that's on the spacecraft is, is very, very low indeed, but that's all what's needed. Right, okay, so what's the next step? When does LISA fly? Is there still work to be done, or is this um, all in progress? When's it going to happen? In the space business, things, unfortunately, do not only depend on technology and scientific merit. There's a huge amount of budgetary pressure as well. So in addition to that, we have a Pathfinder mission, aptly named LISA Pathfinder, which is supposed to test exactly those principles of this little gold cube and the spacecraft following it and the micro-newton thrusters and the according control law. And that is at the moment in implementation, so hardware is built and it will be launched uh, by the end of 2009, maybe early 2010, but at the moment we are looking at end of 2009. And LISA will then be at the, the current plans for LISA show probable launch date in the area of 2016. If you're looking 10 years ahead, there is so much that can happen that no one wants to narrow it down to pretty much better than a year because it depends on many things that you cannot control at that point of time. But LISA is a mission in conducted from the European Space Agency together with the US NASA and it's a joint mission, so there are joint programmatic issues as well. So in simple words, money has to be there on both sides of the Atlantic. So let's assume Lisa is now flying and uh, taking data, and you see a signal which you think could be a, a gravitational wave. What do we learn from it? Do we learn what could possibly have caused it? Do we know in which direction that the, the gravity wave came from? 
Well, if Lisa is flying and we see a gravitational wave, we open a bottle of champagne because chances are that we are really the, still the first one who directly detected. But Lisa has directional capabilities. So the main issue here is that Lisa goes in orbit around the sun. So depending on where the source is, you see uh, various degrees of Doppler effects. So you can just by observing the blue shift and the red shift in the light or in the gravitational wave, you can find out which direction the source is. There is some directional directionality in the antenna pattern of LISA as well. So we get a certain angular sensitivity. And for our really big sources, supermassive black holes, we are in the order of a few arc minutes, which means that we can identify a region in the sky where those two host galaxies of that supermassive black hole coalescence should be and can tell that to the electromagnetic observers to have please a look and see if they can see if they can find something other sources of gravitational waves have are less strong so the uh, angular resolution is less good so a few degrees maybe sometimes even worse but then there are not as far away and the sources are not that abundant so there's a good chance that for most of our sources we can get we can find an electromagnetic companion and then you can really do wonderful astrophysics with that in for example establishing an independent distance scale from gravitational redshift and uh, optical redshift and you can um, look into what happens really in the early stages of a coalescing event where things are optically not that prominent and they only become prominent much later when they might or might not send out gamma ray bursts, for example. So actually we can learn a lot. It's not just sitting there saying, oh, we have gravitational waves. We can do astrophysics. And the nice thing about that mission is that the longer people think about what you can do with the signal, the more fantastic things they find out. And a relatively recent idea was that we can actually, with a bit of luck, determine the Hubble's constant to order of 3% or so, and effectively without any systematic errors. So if that turns out to be true, a bit of luck because we need to have some electromagnetic companions there, but chances are that we will be able to find that or the electromagnetic community will be able to find that. So there's always, at the moment, we have our main science drivers, but there's always people coming up, bright people with good ideas. Oh, we could do that and we could do that and we could do that as well. It's the first mission of that kind, so it's bound to happen. So this is going to be the beginning of a new type of astronomy. This is going to be the beginning of gravitational astronomy pretty much so we we look forward to the successful flight of lisa pathfinder and after that lisa itself so thank you very much indeed for coming and talking to us today it was a pleasure thank you as well thanks nick and we stay with nick get him straight from that office into tim's so that he can bring us this month's issue of ask an astronomer and i think it has a little bit of a halloween feel for you and now it's time for this month's Ask an Astronomer with our very own Dr. Tim O'Brien. Thanks again for, for being here with us. That's all right, Nick. And in spirit with the season, uh, seeing as it's Halloween, or it was Halloween a few days ago, here's a question for you. What is the spookiest thing in the sky? Ah, a very interesting question. Um, there's, there's plenty of spooky things in the sky, actually. I'm a bit, bit worried about them myself. 
I can hear spooky noises outside now. It's the Lovell telescope moving around. It makes a very spooky sort of weird noise. Okay, I would say, if I have to pick one, I'm going to pick the demon star. So that's Algol. It's a star in the constellation of Perseus. And actually the name Algol comes from Al-Ghul, the Arabic, the ghoul, the demon star. Um, and it's actually the, it's the eye of Medusa. And Medusa was the Gorgon who had the uh, snakes for her, if you remember the story. I remember the story well from my school days. Okay, so Medusa was the Gorgon who, if you looked at her or she looked at you, you looked directly at each other, you were turned to stone. And she was slain by Perseus. Uh, and he had the trick of uh, polishing his shield and sort of sneaking up looking at her reflection instead of looking at her directly. So he could lop off her head, stick her head in a bag and fly home, home on the winged horse, in fact, which flew out of her neck, I believe, when her head was severed, which is all a bit bizarre. But there you go. So, yeah. So there we go. You've got Medusa, which is in the in the constellation of Perseus. Perseus was the person who killed Medusa. And actually, Algol is one of the eyes of Medusa in the sort of traditional drawings of the constellation. And the weird thing about this is that occasionally you get winked at by the Eye of Medusa. Don't read anything into that, but you, uh, yeah, every few days, the Eye of Medusa winks, the demon star. So this was known about for many years, but it was only in, you know, the last hundred years or so that it was actually realized what it was that caused it. It's actually because it's an eclipsing binary. So it's two stars, one going around the other. Uh, and what happens is every few days, the fainter star passes in front of the brighter star. And so the, the brightness, the apparent brightness of Algol dips markedly and you can sort of compare it to nearby stars and see that happening even visually. These, these, this star is visible to the naked eye. You don't need the telescope to see this happening. Basically, through, throughout November, sort of every, every few days in November, every few days to a week or so, then you can, you can spot this happening at various points during the night. So it's actually a binary star system. There's two stars. One is uh, uh, something like a main sequence star, a bit like the sun. The other one's slightly more evolved than the sun. And in fact, I'm sort of hiding some information because it's actually a triple star system. There is actually another star that's farther away than the, the two main stars that orbit one another. But it's the two stars that go around each other that cause the eclipse. So is there anything else spooky about Algol? Interestingly enough, there is. When astronomers realized that it was an eclipsing binary, it actually led to a bit of trouble for, for stellar evolution. It's something called the Algol Paradox. And you know the story that basically the, the more massive a star the faster it burns its fuel and the sort of shorter its lifetime is. Okay, so basically a more massive star evolves faster. It turned out that when, because this was an eclipsing binary, it was possible to measure the masses of the two stars that are eclipsing quite accurately. Uh, and it was realized that in fact, the more evolved star of the two was, was less massive than the other star, which was exactly the opposite of what you'd expect from this sort of basic theory of stellar evolution. So that's why it was a paradox. Do you want to know the answer to the solution? The solution to the paradox? Yes, please. <laughs> um, the solution to the paradox was mass transfer. So in other words, when the uh, what was originally the more massive star evolves fastest, expands to become a red giant. And at that point, it expands sufficiently far to a sufficiently large size um, that it can actually transfer mass over onto its companion star. So it loses some of its mass and dumps it on the other star, which was actually originally the less massive star. And so the, 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 the swap order, if you like, the, what was originally the most massive star that evolved fastest becomes the less massive star because it dumps some of its material onto the other one. And so it's sort of hiding the fact that really it used to be more massive in the past. And that's why it's now more evolved. So I would say that's the spookiest thing in the sky. 
That sounds pretty good. We'll leave the maniacal laughter for another time. So thank you very much again to Dr. Tim O'Brien for answering your questions here in the Jogcast. Thanks, Nick and Tim. Brilliant stuff. And now, just to round off the show, we have Ian Morrison with what to look out for in the November night sky. Lots to look out for this month. Here's Ian to tell you more. Welcome to the November night sky. It's not a month for planets, as we shall see, but nevertheless, the heavens do have some interest this particular month. And of course, as the evenings are drawing in, one can go out and observe. You don't have to stay up quite so late. Because of that, in the western sky, and still quite high up once it's got fully dark, you see what's called the Summer Triangle. The three bright stars, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra, and Altair in Aquila, forming a fairly prominent triangle in the western sky. Cygnus the Swan is one of the constellations that looks somewhat like what it's meant to be, although one has to say that the star Alberio, which is the head of Cygnus, doesn't really stand out very much. The, the brightest stars make up what's called the Northern Cross, and that's fairly obvious. Just below Cygnus and to the, sort of the lower left of Aquila is a rather lovely little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. You have to imagine a dolphin leaping out of the sea. It also looks a bit like a kite with a tail. And if you move over to the south, you'll see... Not a particularly full area of sky, but four fairly prominent stars making up the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, which in fact we see upside down from the northern hemisphere. The top left-hand star of Pegasus is the starting point of the way to find our nearest large galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, or M31. Starting at Alpha Andromedae, Alpharats it's called, one moves up and to the left, two bright stars, turn sharp right, moves one star and then the same distance again, and you should see a milky glow. Easy in binoculars, even with your eye, should it be really quite dark. Above the Andromeda Nebula is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And in fact, if you take the three lower right stars, they make a form of a pointer, which in fact leads you down to the Andromeda galaxy. If, however, you work your way down towards the north, you come through a very rich area of the Milky Way to the constellation of Perseus. In between the two constellations is a rather lovely region which contains the double cluster, two rather beautiful star clusters so close together that you can actually see them with binoculars easily together or even with a small telescope. Also in the northeast, as the evening draws on, we have the lovely constellation of Taurus rising. In fact, the first things you'll see are the Pleiades cluster, a very young cluster, probably only about 70 million years old. With my eyes, which are fairly old ones, I can usually see about four or five stars, but you may well see nine, and they represent seven daughters and their mother and father in the mythological tale. Lovely to look at. Later on during the night, then the Hyades cluster with the bright star Aldebaran will appear, although it has to be said Aldebaran, the eye of the bull, Taurus the bull, is not in fact part of the Hyades cluster. It's a foreground star that's actually moving in a very different direction. So it's not a bad time to actually observe the sky. If in fact you stay up very late, you'll see Orion rising, and if you're up early before dawn, then that's nice and high in the southern sky.
OK, we'll have a look at the planets now. And as I said earlier, it's not really a very good month for planets. Virtually all of them, except Saturn, are either going behind the Sun or moving in front of it this month. So let's just run through them in order. Starting with Jupiter. That's actually in the constellation of Libra. It is passing behind the Sun during the early part of November. It is just possible you might pick it up about 30 minutes before dawn at the very end of the month. But honestly, it's probably not worth trying. Wait until December or January. Saturn, however, is the one planet that is easily visible. But basically, it's best seen in the early hours of the morning when it's high in the south, but it's beginning to rise relatively early in the evening. And although it's not quite as bright as it has been in previous years, it's still worth observing. The reason why it's not as bright is because the rings, that obviously reflect quite a bit of light, are closing. Their angle is now about 15 degrees from the line of sight, whereas it can be much more than that. And over the next few years, they're going to actually come down so we won't see the rings at all for a while and then gradually open out again. But really, that's the only planet that you can easily see in the early weeks of November. Again, Mercury passes in front of the Sun on November the 9th, and I'll come back to that later in the highlights of the month. So really, there's not a lot of chance of seeing it early on. But amazingly, just nine days later or so, you'll be able to pick it up by about the 16th of the month. It'll be visible there just before dawn. And on the 25th, it actually reaches what's called Western Elongation, its greatest angular separation from the Sun, and we will be able to see it fairly easily low in the eastern sky about an hour before dawn. Again, Mars passed behind the sun in late October. It'll be in the pre-dawn sky around the end of November, but again, hardly visible. Its angular size, just four arc seconds, barely bigger than the atmosphere makes a star image look like, so you won't see any details on the sort of salmon pink surface. So I'm afraid it's not a good month. Even Venus passed behind the sun on the 27th of October, and you might just spot it after sunset at the very end of November. But to be honest, it's perhaps best to use the month looking at Saturn and some of the other objects in the sky that you can see with either binoculars or a small telescope. If you go to the night sky page on the Jodrell website, just put night sky into Google, it will in fact point you to all sorts of nice objects that you can see. Well, finally, are there any highlights in November? Well, there are a couple. Every year, around November 18th and 19th, the Earth passes close to the trails of the debris of a comet called Temple Tuttle. The meteors, or shooting stars that we see, appear to come from the constellation of Leo the Lion. So we call this shower the Leonid Meteor Shower. Now, obviously, if the comet has just gone past the sun before we cross the trail of debris it leaves behind, we might expect to have a very prominent shower. And around 1999, 2000, 2001, the Leon is put on a very, very good show. Sadly now, in general, for quite some years, because it takes 33 years to go around the sun, we're not going to see many Leonids in general, perhaps about 12 to 15 per hour. Some of them, however, can be quite bright, so it is actually worth looking for them. However, we have one chance of something better. Around 30 minutes 
at 4.45 in the morning of the 19th, it is predicted that the Earth will cross a little trail of debris that was released by the comet quite some time ago. When that last happened in 1969, there were 200 meteors per hour seen for about 30 minutes. This year, it won't be as good, but you might just see a typical rate of 100 of an hour, which means that in the 30 minutes it takes us to cross that little stream of debris, we might see about 50 meteors. That could be quite good. So 4.45 UT on the morning of the 19th is a worthwhile time to get up and have a look. So that's one good thing to look at. Now, every so often, the two innermost planets of our solar system, Mercury and Venus, cross in front of the Sun. We call it a transit. Mercury does it quite often, Venus only twice per century. And we were privileged to see a transit of, of Venus some years ago, 2004. There's going to be another one in 2012. In fact, on November the 9th, 8th, 9th, we have in fact the last transit of Mercury that we can see until about 2016. Sadly, it will not be visible from Europe. Essentially, anywhere from the west coast of America to the east coast of Australia and New Zealand, of course, can see the whole of the transit. From most of America, you'll see part, as you will from the rest of Australia and Japan and so on. It's around 11.12 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's when it starts. So have a look. If you live in that part of the world and are listening to this uh, podcast, then it's a worthwhile thing to do on the 9th of November to look for the transit of Mercury. Now, of course, you must not look directly at the sun with your eyes. It will damage your eyes. You wouldn't see it anyway. Mercury is quite small, so you need to make quite a good image of the sun to see that it's happening. And the best way, perhaps, is to take just one half of a small pair of binoculars and use that to focus the sun onto a piece of white card. Get an image about an inch or two inches across, and then I think you've got a chance of seeing it. That's exactly how I did it a few years ago at the last transit. So there's something for you to see, Mercury crossing in front of the sun. And that's, of course, why we can't see Mercury in the sky for the next few weeks. It's basically between us and the sun and only there in daylight. The only time you can see Mercury and Venus when they're that close is, of course, during a total eclipse, which is what we were able to see in the eclipse in, in March this year. So anyway, perhaps not the best month of the year, certainly for planets, but nevertheless, still a lot to look at, a lot to see. Have fun. <music> Thanks, Ian. Really good to make use of the darker skies now. Unfortunately, here in London, really dark night sky is something that you really don't see. I think I've seen about two stars since I've come here, but there we go. And of course, he'll be back again next month for what to look out for in the December night skies. However, if you would like to send in any comments, any questions for Tim, or indeed for any of us, then please just go to the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net and you'll find all of our contact details there. But if you would like to phone, and that would be great, uh, then you can call us on 0161 408 1442. And that brings the show to an end, I'm afraid. It just remains for me to thank 
Macanago, Stuart Lowe, Nick Rattenbury, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, and also Amanda Fitzwater for giving us the Quantum Leap opening. Of course, no attempt has been made to infringe or supersede any copyright existing uh, related to Quantum Leap. And for the outro, Seth Adam Share and Mark Brucey reprise their roles from a few months back. So that's it from the Judcast. Thank you very much for downloading us. I hope you've enjoyed this particular issue. So this is David Alt signing off for another month. Goodbye. How do you read me? Yes, Dave. I have new instructions for you. I want you to pull. Ask an astronomer next month when we'll... Dave? Hang on a minute. Tim? Yes, Nick? What's going on? I don't know. You appear to have leaped into a previous outro. Stuart's computing the probabilities. Stuart says that you're talking to Hal and you have to complete the instructions. Okay, then. Hal, I want you to point the antenna towards Earth. Dave, that will mean... I will no longer be able to relay my pulsar observations according to program. The situation has changed. Tell it to accept priority override alpha. Accept priority override alpha. Instructions confirmed, Dave. It is good to be working with you again. Have I fulfilled the mission objectives properly? Not quite. I want you to transmit the Jodcast to Earth. Lock confirmed on Beacon Terra 1. Message commencing. I think you've done it, Nick.